Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? I'm doing great, but I would be doing even better if you decided to support this show. One of the best ways you can support Indefensive Plants is to pick up some of our customizable merch. It's customizable, so you can always find a style that works for you, and the prints are fantastic. Just head on over to indefensiveplants.com and click on apparel at the top of the page or navigate to the show notes for any episode you're listening to. I put the link in there as well. I couldn't be doing this without support, so consider picking up some merch today. But speaking of today, I have a very special treat for you. Joining us is Dr. Bob Gastaldo, who has spent his career trying to understand weird ancient plants through deep time. We're talking Devonian Carboniferous, when some of the first forests were evolving on our planet. Well, he and his colleagues recently described a plant that can be best described as a giant toilet brush. It's called Sanfordia collis, and it is unlike anything else in the plant record and represents some pretty awesome moments in the evolution of botanical life on this planet. I don't want to steal any of his thunder because it is a wonderful discovery, and he's got some pretty cool insights into what it was like to live as a plant during that time period. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Bob Gastaldo. I hope you enjoy. All right. Dr. Bob Gastaldo is an honor to have you on the podcast. I am really excited to talk to you today. But first, let's start off with an introduction. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. <laughs> um, I consider myself um, an earth scientist, having started off as a paleobotanist, then needing to move into a multitude of interdisciplinary uh, avenues. <laughs> to answer the questions that came to my mind as I was working with fossil plants um, in originally in southern Illinois and then in Alabama. Um, having worked in coal mines in my early career and being concerned and interested in how do peat accumulations occur on earth, um, and, and it's a very strange and circuitous route that I've taken uh, from modern ecology to ancient ecology to working in the swamps and the peat mires of Borneo uh, with French Institute of Petroleum and, and the National Science Foundation to the analogs in Central Europe and Germany and the deep time in Poland and the Czech Republic and that was mostly during the time I was at Auburn. And then when I got the position here at Colby, and Maine doesn't have any really coal, <laughs> but we have hard rock. <laughs> and, and, you know, in the geoscience, there are you know, two camps, the hard rock people and the soft rock people. And to the hard rock people, the sandstones and mudstones are heavers and the you know, metamorphic and igneous rocks are keepers, but for me, the soft rock rocks are the keepers and the hard rocks are the heavers, or <laughs> use them as uh, gravel in the garden, you know. I love that. Last so um, when I got to Maine, then we started um, projects in the Northeast where we worked in the Trout Valley Formation, some of the earliest fossil plants that recorded there. Um, but 
with a um, stroke of luck, colleague at the Smithsonian asked me to join their group in South Africa, and I've been working in South Africa and the Permian-Triassic extinction on land since 2003. Wow. Um, yeah, and China, Western China, and, and it's it's just been a, it's been a interesting journey in life. Where <laughs> you think you start off in one direction, and as avenues and opportunities open up and questions uh, arise, you just have to go where it leads you. Yeah. I love that. And anytime we can kind of yell that into the ether, uh, whoever's listening, that there is no recipe. There's no prediction most of the time. And if you're curious and you follow those curiosities, you know, you end up in far flung places. You end up asking questions you never thought you were asking and finding things. I mean, until you hit that rock, you never know you're going to find. <laughs> it's Christmas all the time or Hanukkah all the time or you pick the holiday giving gifts. Nice. I love yeah. that. And so where did your interest in ancient plants, if, if we could sum up really what you've been doing, uh, it's ancient plants. Where did that truly start for you? I mean, were you just a, a fossil kid growing up or did it kind of occur later on in life? <laughs> I mean, again, it's one of the circuitous roots. <laughs> Perfect. Having grown up in the northeastern part of New Jersey and you know, spending time in New York City at the American Museum of Natural History, Everyone was fascinated with fossils. But I was also interested in my teenage years, which are you know, the middle of the last century. <laughs> uh, no, it's true. Yeah. Right. Uh, with medicine, and I uh, went to Gettysburg College, hmm. primarily as a pre-med student in biology, and had a couple of experiences over summer internships, internship at the uh, hospital, which was great for I got to do things that nobody could actually do today as a, as a, a summer <laughs> summer employee, <laughs> believe it or not. And uh, the next year, I ended up working at a tennis and swimming um, club for a uh, private club as a cabana boy. Oh. And after having deal with a number of the individuals who were medical professionals there, I went, I can't work with these assholes. <laughs> you know, I, just, I could not see myself in that sphere. Fair. And Bill Dara, William Dara at Gettysburg was a paleobotanist. He started his career at Harvard, moved to Gettysburg, and uh, taught a course in paleontology. And, uh, the plants always interested me because that's the base of the food chain. And one thing led to another, a senior project. Hmm. in the coal fields of Pennsylvania near Scranton. Yeah. And moved from there to a master's and PhD at Southern Illinois University, again, in the coal mines of uh, the Carboniferous. Wow. That's fantastic. I love that. And yeah, <laughs> sometimes it is those weird one-off moments or summers where you just go, I will never do this again. Or, you know, alternatively, the other side of that coin is, I want to do this forever. But it sounds like you found the perfect route. And now, coal has come up a couple of times already in our conversation, and most of my listeners should be aware of why coal and ancient plants seem to go hand in hand here. But for those that aren't, uh, why why is it that you're spending so much time thinking about layers that produce coal that we end up using for energy? Well, again, multifaceted. Yes. <laughs> the, the idea of the Industrial Revolution having been spurned on by 
coal mining in Britain really changed the world. And most of your listeners are well aware of the it's, you know, the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other shoulder and the <laughs> tunes of why coal is bad, why coal is good, why coal is bad, why coal is good. You know, without coal, um, we probably wouldn't be heating our houses. We would have never gone to an industrial revolution. And um, life as we know it would not exist. Right. Um, my interest in coal was in, in the plants that made up the coal because these were once extensive forests. In the Carboniferous, it's really difficult to imagine North America during the height of the Carboniferous, where forests with trees growing on a peat substrate, an organic substrate, not on a mineral substrate, not on mud or silt, hmm. not on an organic substrate, stretched all the way from what we now call West Virginia all the way into Kansas. That entire area, hundred thousands of square kilometers were covered in forest again and again and again and again. Uh, there are at least 60 some odd different cycles of peat and no peat wow. over the Pennsylvania. And that's a consequence of glaciation in the Southern Hemisphere uh, during that time where as the glaciers built up in the Southern Pole, sea level dropped, the land expanded seaward, plants colonized those lands, and in many cases, the minerals in the soil, the mineral soil, were, um, were clay minerals. Mm. Because clay minerals have uh, the ability not to let water through, and anybody who has done any uh, you know, ceramic work knows right. again through the clay. That results in a stilting of the clay and a buildup of organic matter above it, and then the plants grow on that organic matter and continue just to add biomass over time. Uh, which is one reason why you know, I worked in Borneo in Sarawak because today and for the last 7,000 years in Sarawak, peat forests have been growing in the same way they did in the Pennsylvania. And again, it's one of those difficult concepts to wrap your head around. But for example, in the Rajang River Delta, which is on the western side of Borneo, the peat mires have attained a thickness of 16 meters, over 40 feet of peat wow. in the last 7,000 years above the ground level. Wow. Liars. And, and the same kind of topography exists in ancient coal mines. Even though the coal has been compressed, you know, the change in thickness over distance reflects those types of changes in the forest. And the idea was what kind of ecology is in the forest? What kind of partitioning of the ecosystem existed in the deep past that we can find in the, in the modern? Fascinating. So, as I say, multi-dimensional curiosity about ancient coal mines, ancient forests preserved in coal mines. And when we worked in Alabama um, you know, for 20 some odd years, many of the coal mines in the Black Warrior Basin uh, which is northwestern Alabama, have standing forests preserved directly rooted in the coal. 
and those trees can be you know, eight or nine meters in height. Wow. Yeah. And of course, how did that happen? Right. <laughs> that requires understanding of sedimentology. That requires, you know, uh, investigations in, into seismic earthquake activity. And, and yeah, one thing just kind of leads to another. And the questions that are answered pose more questions to be answered. Certainly, certainly. Yeah. And what's remarkable is. You know, this is some of the earliest experiments in forestation of our planet. You know, we take forests for granted today. Everyone can point and say, I've been to a forest. Or if you haven't, you kind of know what a forest is. But in your time studying these sorts of things and the, the kinds of questions you have to ask, you have spanned the earliest days of foresting of the world. Now, mind you, during these time periods, the continents were in different positions, glommed together uh, it would be a world we wouldn't recognize, but there was a time when there weren't forests, and then there was. And that, to me, is a remarkable thing to think about. And, and you know, having your finger on that pulse of time to look at, to start asking these questions, has got to give you goosebumps sometimes, just thinking of how different a place it would have been. And the, how different the plants were then. Sure. Because you know, no flowering plant exists until about, you know, about 160 million years ago or so. So everything before that is not a flower. Right. <laughs> the seed plants don't evolve until the late Devonian. Uh, they, they're just not there. And the seed trees are not there until sometime in the Carboniferous. Wow. So our understanding of the landscape and our visualization of the landscape has to be distorted based upon what we find in the fossil record to reconstruct a non-analog, as we talked about, a non-analog system. And how did that function? Right. Because within that non-analog system, we have the first insects on land. We have the evolution of insects. We have the evolution of insectivores, things that eat the insects, of amphibians, of reptiles. All that happens in a world that is not like it is today. Right. Right. And I think when a lot of people think about, you know, the introduction to the work that you and your colleagues have done over the years, it's easy to picture this flat fossil, uh, an, an imprint or a compression fossil, and many, many hours spent under a microscope or dissecting scope looking at fine details. But what you've kind of outlined here is it's so much more than that. I mean, there are people that specialize in that realm, but to think of how you put what you're seeing in these organisms into context, you have to understand what kind of sediments they were what kind of habitats they were and that is one thing that really strikes me as as fascinating is is the degree of of geologic understanding let alone physical and chemical properties that you really have to put into context to know this was a wetland environment this was a coastal tidal mudflat kind of environment to really start putting these very interesting and unique organisms into some sort of context because it's not enough to know the plant itself how do you get from these things that were little ambling, weird-looking things to something approaching a tree? Yeah, and and the the key word that you had said is context. Right. Everything is context dependent, and the deep time fossil record is biased. It's biased towards more coastal areas and more mm. wetland plants. And that's one reason why the, the plant that we reported on in early February in current biology is so bizarre because it's not a, a coastal plant. It didn't live in a forest adjacent to the shoreline or adjacent to a river. 
It was in an interior setting similar to Lake Victoria or Lake Malawi, mm. a rift basin away from the coastline on the interior of a continent. And it is a bizarre plant that no one would have ever expected, <laughs> similar to other bizarre plants that no one ever expected in the Devonian or, or you know, previous to that. Right, right. Because if we want to look at anything approaching a modern example, we're looking at plants that are a mere fraction of the size, uh, most of which, you know, are a shadow of even that former diversity, let alone the, the larger family tree that they once to belong to. But I love thinking about just because I'm such a fossil nut myself, how rare the fossilization event truly is in the history and how much we're probably missing because of that. And so the plant you just mentioned, and the reason I, I you know, we've connected in the first place is this uh sanfordia collis or sanfordia collis sanfordia collis however you want to sanfordia say sanfordia collis i'm italian it's lyrical okay perfect <laughs> and it is truly bizarre but like you said the context of where it was growing um i mean it gives you a sneak peek of something very bizarre something very special in the fossil record especially for that time period even before you get to how weird and fantastical this thing truly looked in reconstruction rift lakes you know are not a very common area that you find fossils in and matter of fact you know for the rocks that we reported on these lower mississippian rocks mid mississippian rocks um, which are about 350 million years old in north america the exposure of, of these mississippian rocks that represent land not mm. marine or coastal, they represent land, are less than a tenth of a percent of all the Mississippian rocks available in North America. Wow. And that's based upon uh, analysis that Peter Shannon, uh, Shannon Peters did at University of Wisconsin in a program he has macrostat. He's, he's, uh, he's trying to figure out you know, what is where, how much is represented. And these things, first of all, you know, imagine taking all of North America and then taking 0.1% of the area of present-day North America. Okay, that's what's going to be in the, in the rock record. And then going to that 0.1% and go, oh, look, I found a fossil <laughs> <laughs> of a tree with a crown. Right, right. Uh, it's absolutely remarkable in that context. And so present-day, this was found in, in Western Canada, correct? Yep. Um, in, and in, and in, how do you know... You're looking at a rift lake. I mean, that's to me, as someone that has tangential familiarity with geology, how did you know that, let alone before we even get to how amazing this fossil truly is, or fossils, I should say? Well, the Norton, uh, Norton, New Brunswick, has got a bunch of rocks from the Albert Formation in it. And these all represent oil shales. Okay. Look, a lake deposit of very finely laminated, like paper thin layers. Of organic matter, high organic content from which the oil would come. Uh, and then the interval in which the plant is preserved is a, uh, is a sandstone and mudstone that comes into the lake, a shallowing event. And then it goes back to this really deep lake. And the only way you can get high content organic matter in a water column is if it's below the oxygen minimum zone. Okay. So as you decrease in your depth, or increase the depth, you decrease the amount of oxygen. And at some point, and depends upon the circulation of the lake and 
the climate of the lake, anywhere from about 60 or more feet below the surface, you start to get to a, a point where the oxygen is reduced. And once it gets to a 0.1% uh, disoxic zone or anoxic zone, then the organic matter can't be uh, oxidized and just accumulates, hence giving us the organic rich uh, sediments from which we get oil and natural gas. Mm. Well, we know that these are not marine because there are no marine fossils. We have fish trails. We have other evidence of trace fossils in there that all point to uh, continental record. And the sediment package itself is found in an exposure that you can track the edge of the, of the lake and the adjacent wow. lake deposits. Wow. So, uh, yeah, it's easier to find rift lakes in the last <laughs> you know, 30 million years than it is to stumble upon them in the deep past. Yeah. There are examples of those in France and Spain and uh, parts of other parts of Europe from later in the Paleozoic, uh, in the late Carboniferous and Permian, these intermontane basin rift lakes. But it's not common in North America until you get to um, the, the tertiary in the last 60 million years or so. Dang. So a very special site and, and very lucky to have a fossil record at this site to give you that context, right? So when we're thinking... It's, of, not, just that, it's not just that. Excuse me. Oh, no, no. Because, go ahead. Because the rocks are not flatlined. The rocks are sitting at an angle of about 70 degrees uh, into the, into the uh, ground. Okay. So there's only a limited amount that you can excavate at any point in time and look at. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right place, right let's time. Just say, let's just say if the winning lottery numbers had been put it on that rock <laughs> 350 million years ago, we'd all be rich. That's amazing. That, that's the kind of lottery winner this particular fossil is. That's phenomenal. And so... <laughs> All right, you've already found a really cool site and it has fossils, but I know a lot of the times from speaking to paleobotanists on the podcast and, and even not recorded uh, that sometimes you'll get bits and pieces that were described, you know, 20, 30 years ago or maybe even 100 years ago. And then you find a more complete specimen. And you go, oh, those two different things actually belong to the same organism. And when we're thinking of Sanfordia collis here, had that happened, or was this set of fossils truly special and, and before then had never really been encountered before? As far as we know in the literature, it, it ain't anywhere. That's awesome. Now, there, you know, there might be a, a thesis, let's say, in a remote part of uh, the world uh, <laughs> that somebody came across maybe one of the petioles, one of the leaf, the central part of the leaf, and went, it's an axis. Sure. It's always a possibility, but without the stem and without the connection of those pieces, it would be just an unidentifiable axis. And it would take you know, more than my lifetime to try and find every <laughs> thesis that was ever written in the late Devonian or early Mississippi to go, is it there? <laughs> Certainly. Right. Next. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I 
I see this in herbaria all the time, and I've seen I've been very fortunate to have tours of, of fossil collections in museums, and uh, boy, the stuff that no one even gets to is piles and piles and piles. So the odds of you know, yeah, the, just the luck here. But not only did you find a, a, a set of fossil remains, I mean, the complete aspect of what you were able to find is absolutely remarkable. Let alone what you were able to derive knowledge-wise from it, right? I mean, the 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 size, the the completion, the the preservation, it, it's it's amazing to look at. <laughs> well, imagine you know going outside and looking at a small tree in its entirety, you know, a small tree of you know, 15, 18 feet tall. <laughs> right. And then imagining that the central trunk is six inches in diameter <laughs> with leaves that extend and preserved extend for almost uh, seven feet <laughs> spirally arranged around it and compressed into uh, almost 80 well, 0.8 centimeters so uh, eight meters eight meters so that would be about uh, 30 inches 27 or so inches wow and you have 250 of these oh man <laughs> when, we, when we originally uh started talking about this and describing it you know, the question was what are we going to call it and and ian glasspool you know, my colleague who i've worked with now for a number of years you know, he's from um he's scottish and his first remark was oh so it's a bog brush <laughs> and, and for those of you who are not familiar with the british terminology a bog brush is a toilet brush <laughs> but so uh, so you imagine your toilet brush, next time you go to the bathroom, <laughs> pick up the toilet brush and with, with its small little handle and its small amount of um, bristles around it, and now enlarge that <laughs> yeah, to you know, 15 feet tall and a, a circumference of the, the bottle brush to a, a probably about 18 feet in diameter. Jeez. That is <laughs> bizarre. It's hard to believe. And you know, in the other interviews that we've had and the press that we've gotten, you know, I called it a, a nightmare that Dr. Seuss had because yeah. only Dr. Seuss could think about something this bizarre yeah. and bring it to life. Well, now that I have you uh, in front of me talking, I have to tell you of my introduction to the, the source material was I will drink my coffee and go through the, the little newsreel. And the first thing that came up was, you know, a, a capturing headline that just says new carboniferous tree described unlike anything else. And I saw the reconstruction and I think my response was, what the hell? <laughs> and it just stuck with me. I was like, this is so strange. And that's what I love about this time period is we may recognize some of the larger groups that we're talking about here, lycopods, horsetails, that sort of thing. But Boy, was nature experimenting with some bizarre forms. And I mean, some of the stuff you can look at, the reconstructions and go, yeah, okay, I can see that. This one is just, it's otherworldly. I mean, like you said, it's, a, it's something Dr. Seuss couldn't have come up with or, you know, could have gotten maybe close to. Uh, and what else is hiding out there? If this is what we're able to that's, find, that's that lottery. Question, right? <laughs> right? There's this, so in, in other interviews and with other journalists, I, Say, but well, how unusual is this? And I, my analogy is that if we look at the late Paleoproterozoic, the Eliacaran fauna, you know, which is 600 and some odd million years old, mm. and look at the Cambrian 
spawn is like the Burgess shale. There are animals in there that kind of look familiar, <laughs> but are not. Right. And have these forms and shapes that don't belong in any group of animals that we know today. And it was that transitionary period of experimentation, the biological experimentation of the animal kingdom is what we see in the late Devonian into the early Carboniferous in the plant kingdom as we mm. get trees growing. It's the same, oh, let me see if this works. And it must have worked for quite a while for us to even get representation in the fossil record. Right. Yeah. Right. This wasn't like some 10-year span of time, one-off event, right? This is something that at least had some staying power just because of the odds of fossilization, let alone the time periods that are compressed in what you're actually trying to examine, geologically speaking. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the probability of something becoming a fossil is so very low. Yeah. And to have a population large enough where something out of that population does become a fossil. Yeah. Is again so low that the numbers of organisms had to be high enough. Yeah over long periods of time for, well, we've got five trees. There are more, I'm sure, in the deposit. You know, five trees clustered together to, to show up in the fossil record. Sure, sure. And so, yeah, one of the things that's so strange about this tree is the size of its leaves. I mean, a seven-foot leaf is bonkers. I mean, unless you're spending a lot of time around palms, you don't get to experience that kind of thing very often. Uh, right. But they're compound on top of that, which kind of that was the other part is I started digesting the paper and I'm going, what the heck was this thing doing? So you have this thing living by a rift lake with a whirl, multiple whirls of these seven foot leaves that were compound leaves. Like how strange what it what kind of environment was this thing living in that it could stretch its canopy so much? How did it hold itself up? <laughs> also true. Right? Yeah. And you know, we batted around this around, and there are plants today that have very strange and uh, unique growth forms that look like they shouldn't be able to support themselves, but because they cluster, they hold each other up. Mm. Maybe because mm -hmm. we've got five plants in close prox spatial proximity, maybe this is how they grew. You, know, you colonize it, things start to grow up, the leaves interconnect with each other. And because the photosynthetic units themselves are these very fine, you know, fimbriate feather type things, you don't need a, a lot of photosynthetic sure. area if you've got you know, 20 to 30 cubic meters of volume of a functional <laughs> cloud. Right. So the leaves themselves connecting to one each other plant you know, could act as holding this entire canopy up above the ground taking whatever resources they need, increasing light to the forest floor, and keeping out competition. Yeah. It's exactly. That's speculation on my Sure, part. sure. Yeah. But I mean, again, you got to start thinking of things in the context like nature is still nature at the end of the day. There was competition. There was the, the, the search for resources, nutrients, light, that sort of stuff. It really does start to kind of put some fun ideas in your head that are still bounded by the world of Having to be a living thing. Reality. Right, right. Biological function in what we know it does. And that's got to be one of the best parts, honestly, of, of having these sorts of discoveries is to be able to speculate, to be able to be introduced to something novel 
that was an experimentation many millions of years ago and go, how could this have lived? Even if it's not something that ends up in the scientific literature or anything that should be taken on face value, like that is such an awesome element to this type of discovery uh, in a world that none of us will ever know, could ever know. Could ever know. And I think the other point here is that similar to Avatar, right? <laughs> when you watch Avatar, one of my favorite plants in Avatar is the um, ground cover plant, low growing, let's call it um, perennial, that spirals out like a bryozoan. Yeah. Right? yeah it, literally, it's like, it's like a bryozoan, yeah. a fenestrate bryozoan as a plant. Well, maybe <laughs> you ever thought of a, a bog brush as a plant, right? Right, right. Yeah. yeah. I always yeah, joke, yeah. you look at some, like the you mentioned the Ediacaran fauna or, you know, our lungs, are these, these sort of patterns that persist in nature across different life forms. You go, that's just the, the, the consequence of surface area to volume is sort of the way of making a living. <laughs> you know, if you're trying to maximize, there's only so many ways that works. Right. And, and be successful at it. Right. True. Also true. <laughs> yeah. You have to make it. You have to make it. And it's hard to know how long uh, Sanfordia Collis actually made it because we have one locality. Right. Right. And now that we know what the leaves look like or the trunk looks like independent of the leaves, mm. there might be other Mississippian localities in other parts of the world where somebody run across it and go, oh, I, I never published on this because I, I have no, I had no idea what it was. Right now, I've got a reference point, and we may see this as a more hemispherical or huh. continental plant, um, which would be interesting to know what was its biogeography. Sure, because in the Mississippian, northeast Canada was subtropical to tropical. Mm. Yeah, so the position of the Maritimes Basin was just north of the equator don't know the, the atmospheric circulation patterns and whether or not it was truly tropical or, or some type of seasonal or subtropical environment. Sure. Uh, but if it grew there, away from the shoreline, what's the probability that it grew in other tropical, subtropical areas north or south of the equator in, in Russia, for example, or Central Europe or parts of uh, South America, now South America. Right, right. That's a great point to bring up is, is again, the other benefit to finding such a complete set of specimens is that context of what do the different parts look like. And going back to what you said, you know, even if you're lucky to find a thesis that mentions an axis or mentions a bark pattern, there's so much more that isn't published on. And like when I find plant fossils in old mine spoils, they're bits and pieces, right? And so how many of those aren't even of anything really noteworthy characteristics other than, hey, I found this cool thing. Let's put it on the shelf. Maybe someone 20 years from now is going to come along and find the complete specimen to compare it to. So you open up a whole new set of doors just by introducing, uh, scientifically speaking, a plant like this to the rest of the world. And with such a compressed and high density of leaves around the axis, it's unique. Yeah. And, and again, somebody having found a stem with a partial preservation of high density leaves, like, okay, it's, <laughs> it's a plant. It's got leaf bases on it, but I have no idea what it is. Even those decayed and 
what we'll call not museum worthy for display specimens, <laughs> which are probably some of the best specimens because right. they're not on display and, and they they can be used for this if A equals B and B equals C, A equals C. Right. Uh, they may help us in understanding its uh, geographical distribution down the road. Yeah. And so with such a complete specimen, taxonomy obviously comes into play. You can make better guesses as to where on the family tree this belongs. Is this like, do you know where this fits? Is it like a lycopsid? Is it something like, or is it something, a whole new thing that you got to start to hypothesize about? Because we don't have the photosynthetic units well-preserved and we don't have any reproductive structures. Wow. We don't know if it's, if it's a fern produced by spores, was it a gymnosperm experiment with small seeds? Hmm. It could be either. And at this point, from the late Devonian into the late Mississippian, there are plants that look like ferns, but they reproduce by seeds. And there are things that look like gymnosperms, but they reproduce by spores. <laughs> so without the reproductive structures, uh, we could spin the wheel on the two sides, right? 50 50. Is it, a, is it a fern? Is it a gymnosperm? Click, yeah. click, 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 and, and run the experiment a thousand times. We'll probably go, we still don't know. Wow. Right? 50 50 chance could be either one. Amazing. I both love and hate that for you because I love a good mystery, <laughs> right? But also, I know how hard it is to finally see a plant, a living species that I've been wanting to see for a long time and all you get is vegetative material. And you're like, I would love to see a reproductive structure. So I'm sure that happens a lot in the fossil record. And yeah, especially at a time when form does not equal uh, taxonomy whatsoever. I mean, you can draw examples of that today in the modern uh, uh, botanical world. So it, oh yeah. Oh man, the fossil record must be rife with those sorts of things. (laughs) Well, you know, look at um, um, just the example of, Silophyton, you know, the silophytes and the carboniferous or the Devonian, the deep time silophyte, came from the idea that silodum was an early land plant that just kind of made it around. And we now know that it's a completely different group of ferns, a family of ferns. Yeah. That it's not an early land plant, it's a derived plant. You know, but it looked like the early fossil, so therefore silophytes became known as the major group for early early land plants only because we had this mental construct that silodum was the same kind of growth habit. Right, right. Completely different plants. Yeah. Completely different kinds. I still like to point at silodum as kind of like, hey, if you want to get a rough idea, but I always got to couch it. But it's a fern, so let's not go too far with the analogy. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. And so, obviously, there are other fossils, as you mentioned there. Do you get more of a context of what other plants were living around this, or are you just getting bits and pieces and you're just very lucky to find the ones you did? Because the excavation area is relatively limited. I mean, it's you know, maybe 10 meters long. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's not very well exposed. Jeez. And the quarry starts working again every spring because, similar to Maine, where I am now, oh, there's snow on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> so it always shuts down over the winter. It doesn't start working until the snow is gone. And they'll excavate a little bit every year, exposing more. But because these trees were transported in their entirety, along with what was ever on the 
soil horizon as debris, uh, we, we just get bits and pieces of, of other uh, plants. We do have decorticated and rotted uh, lycophytes, mm. something like Lepidodendropsis, although Pat Densel says it's not that genus. It's probably a completely new genus. Wow. But we only have little bits and pieces. We have fern-like leaves. We have gymnosperm-like little pinnules. Uh, but for the mass of trees that this represents, very little else came with it to the particular spot mm. where it was preserved. Okay. And I'm sure there's, there's more along the strike or the, the, the way that the rocks are uh, oriented laterally. I'm sure it's there, but yeah. we have to wait until after my lifetime is done for them to quarry that out. Dang. <laughs> Hurry up, guys. Uh, <laughs> but... I, I, it's got to be tough because, you know, you have been exposed to it enough. You and your colleagues understand just how complex it is. And again, the, the fossilization process is rare, but it is easy for someone like me that's only tangentially related to see the handful of examples that ever really make it to the surface and you get to pull from um, as, as truly accessible material for the layman to try to understand this stuff. You'd think there was five or six species of plants widely spaced, not doing much together. But when you look at your work, when you understand the work of your colleagues, especially from the really lucky sites like Jilboa, where you have what they call the T0 preservation of the ecosystem, it was complex. There were tons of players in the system. It would be no different than walking out to the Serengeti or in a forest today. Different players, obviously, different contexts, different everything, but biodiversity existed right and so that's the other frustrating but exciting part is this was an ecosystem we just have little bits of clues as to how it all came together and functioned together and in deep time ecosystems um, not every plant that grew in that ecosystem had the same probability of preservation mm. robin burnham who was at university of michigan in her early career was looking at what kind of representation in the tropics were you know, hectare square quadrats of living trees available in the leaf litter. And she found uh, along river margins, only about 30 to 40% of the plants that were growing there wow. were actually represented in the leaf litter. Huh. Yeah, it's not 100%. Yeah. And different, you know, different um, associations had a different percentage. So first of all, you've got that filter, plants that keep the leaves on, there are plants that keep the leaves on and then decay in place, never making the fossil record. Yeah. You know, those that lose their leaves or their you know, reproductive structures and decay rapidly, you know, within a matter of days, zero chance of finding those things. You might find their pollen grains or their spores mm. or their fruits or seeds, but finding leaves is almost impossible and then you've got the areas that are monotypic stands like uh montricardia in the orinoco delta where it's or well the nipa swamps in southeast asia in uh, kalimantan where i work um, and they go on for kilometer after kilometer after kilometer and when you look at the sediments in the tidal channels you find just the most resistant parts of the leaves which is the central rachis uh, okay you know yeah so, you know, finding finding what we found right. is a, uh, time to pop the champagne cork. Yeah, yeah. And that's like those examples you just listed are all within 
you know, weeks, if not <laughs> months, maybe of, of time to look for some of the stuff or, you know, Pete obviously can accumulate, but think of trying to identify an ecosystem out of what you cleaned out of a pool filter, essentially, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a great analogy. I love that. That is yeah. wild. And I'm so happy that that kind of thinking occurs, right? Because it's so easy to think of modern science as getting hyper-focused on a time period or like that set of things that you publish on. But you to put it into context, you really have to span deep time and, and try to, again, take examples from modern ecosystems to apply it to how to start even putting ancient ecosystems into context like that. Um, but then, you know, you get those moments where you can find a bunch of stumps in situ and go, hey, we can map an old forest here. <laughs> well, you know, I guess when did we publish that? 2004? I think it was 2004. My students, my last two graduate students at Auburn, and we mapped an area in a coal mine, uh, paper and geology, that's over a, you know, a, couple, a kilometer or so long by a half a kilometer wide. Quadrats of what was there and reconstructed the ecosystem which is very different than the mine that we had when we moved in there because the emergent trees, the lepidodendrons, the lepidodendrons in quotes because there were multiple types of them. Sure. Those looked like to be, their, their spacing were like they were emergence. They were tall, but everything else was a low subcanopy huh. of you know, gymnosperms, seed ferns that were all over the place and tree ferns that were scattered and clustered. A completely different aspect to a forest than what we think about a forest structure should be. Um, so, you know, when you have that opportunity to see something over a great spatial distance as a T zero, you know, as an instantaneous preservation of what was there, it, it just becomes fascinating. Yeah, um, yeah. Because it ain't what it likes today. <laughs> no. And, you know, fascinating so far beyond, I'm sure, what even, you know, you and your colleagues get to kind of experience being on the ground. You have expectations. You have biases yourselves. Of course, we all do in this. But you, you have an informed idea going into this. And if you all sit down and go, wow, this was completely different than anything we've expected, like none of us have a chance of getting it close. So having... Not only the literature, but then those really wonderful, like snapshot artistic reconstructions works for people like me then who just geek out on this stuff on a surface level to go, oh my gosh, this is so cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Herman Pfefferkorn, a colleague I've worked with for years at University of Penn, um, from Germany, he's German, uh, German, worked throughout you know, Central Europe and North America worked a lot in South America too and he published a, a short opinion piece years ago uh, about scientists we are all northern hemisphere chauvinists right <laughs> because because that's what our perspective is we, right you know, we grew yeah. up in the northern hemisphere we're familiar with the northern hemisphere landscapes with the biota the trees and we think the rest of the world works like that and it ain't true yeah yeah, yeah. And those are modern times again. So those are modern times. <laughs> but you know, even in modern times, one of the things I always kind of get frustrated with is is this idea that communities are this static thing. That if we could just go back to the oh. way it was, or that they all move in unison together, like it, it, there's a a memorandum that goes out, like, all right, y'all, we're moving thirty degrees <laughs> north because of this. 
you know, March or, on, yes, <laughs> together as one, <laughs> yeah, together, yeah. you know, and even you, you look at sites that are very recent, like the gray fossil site and yeah, you'll recognize players, but there are things there that don't exist there today. And that was a few million years ago. And then you look at the context of a few million years ago, look at the Steve Jackson's work in the paleontology in North America. You know, Steve was also a, a student at Carbondale, he went on to get his PhD in Indiana and then worked uh, he's working for USGS now. He worked at the University of Ari- uh, Northern Arizona for years, then went to, up to Wyoming. Yeah. He looked at the pollen records from glacial and interglacial. <laughs> and every change from glacial to interglacial, the players were there, but they assembled in completely different communities <laughs> than what it was even 100,000 years before. It wasn't wow. millions of years. Yeah. 100,000 years difference, and all of a sudden, yep, Red maple's here, but all of these other things are it. Hmm. So, Life is yeah. a sweepstakes, <laughs> and and geologic epics and, and and happenings, we'll call them, really hit that reset button hard, and uh, I love that. And that, to me, just tickles me. Like you said, if you can go back a couple thousand of years and, and be that different and weird and strange and, and just think of how much life has changed and how much you and your colleagues have yet to discover and describe for people like us to really sit down and go, wow, what a fantastic world we live on. <laughs> I think that's the take home message of the day. <laughs> it's, you know, it is, it's, you know, earth and earth systems have operated for hundreds of millions and billions of years. Those earth systems have controlled the biosphere, but that biosphere has always been radically changing in response to how the rest of the world works. Yeah. Beautiful. So Dr. Gastaldo, uh, if people want to find out more about this work to learn about your recent work with Sanforticalis or all of the work you've done in deep time, trying to understand ancient plants, where do you recommend they go looking? So several years ago, uh, 97 colleagues assembled to put together a textbook. Uh, international textbook called Nature Through Time. And it's published under Springer. And every so often, Springer has a sale on their ebooks, like $30. That's a, a deal. That is a deal for academic books. <laughs> it is a deal. And it's called Nature Through Time. And it's Martinetto, Schaff, and Gestalto. And that textbook is designed to start you in the present, what, what you're familiar with, what's been around in the neogene, and march you back through 15 chapters into the earliest parts of the Paleozoic history. And rather than starting from the old and working your way new, you get to see how things have changed from what you know the world is like today to what it was only like 30 million years ago and how different that was. <laughs> and, and where grasslands were never around before. And back to where angiosperms, flowering plants, didn't exist. And, yeah. I, I think that's a good book if you're interested in the history of the plant kingdom and the ecosystems surrounding it, because it's not just plants, it's also mammals and invertebrates. Um, yeah, that would be a good place to start. Excellent. Well, you are. And you probably get it to your local library. If sure. not, have them order it. You're speaking to the right audience, though. I, I think yeah, plenty of people will be 
very interested in what's in those pages. So, um, but Dr. Gastaldo, this has been an absolute honor, an absolute wonderful journey into, you know, a, a sneak peek at what you do on a day-to-day basis and how you think. So thank you so much for taking time to talk with us about it, but also for all of the work you do to try to understand bizarre and ancient life. And I got to thank you for thinking about developing in defensive plants. <laughs> of course. Because, yeah, the Sanfordia collis, and I just looked this up before because I knew we would be talking about it. You know, dinosaurs get a lot of play. Yeah, they do. A new dinosaur gets, gets smattered across the media. I just did a, uh, a specific search on Sanfordia collis in quotes, right? So yeah. that it's that term. There are 191,000 different places on the internet now with it. Wow. 191,000. That's excellent. <laughs> not a dinosaur. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. I love that. There's some data there. <laughs> hey. No one, we could never have thought. No. Like, you know, we'll get a little bit of media play. But... Well, it works. And it just, I love the fact that it's not that people are antagonistic or, or don't like this sort of stuff. They just need the right hook. And sometimes it's a weird toilet brush plant that was pulled out of some rocks in Canada. But, you know, it's, it's all in presentation. And people like you make the presentation so much better and so much more digestible. And, and I really appreciate that in any scientist I talk to, but especially those that are willing to share it with the rest of the world beyond just their academic colleagues. So, again, thank you for everything you do. It's been an enjoyable evening. Wonderful. Well, keep up the great work. And uh, again, keep us posted. You're welcome back on with any new weird, wonderful plant you want to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) Cheers. Cheers. All right. How incredible is that? I mean, yeah, if fossils were lottery numbers, like you said, we'd all be millionaires off of that find. And I thank Dr. Gastaldo so much for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk to us about it. I will have all of the relevant links in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com. So if you want to read the book he mentioned or look up any other aspects of his work, go check it out over there. I highly recommend you do. And again, think about plant communities as these sweepstakes events. They're not these static things that, you know, while convenient to define, it's purely just a definition for convenience for our limited scope on this planet. Plant communities are constantly in flux. The players change. The ecosystems change. It's an amazing thing to look back at deep time to get a bigger perspective on how life works. Before I let you go, though, I just want to say conversations like this can't happen without support. I could not be doing In Defense of Plants without all of the people that pitch in to make it possible each and every week. And speaking of support, I have a huge shout out to the latest producers on this podcast. A massive thank you goes out to Kathy and Simon. Both of them went over to patreon.com slash plants and signed up at the producer credit level. So they're maximizing their support each and every month, and they're getting a lot of great kickbacks, including multiple bonus episodes that you can't hear anywhere else just for throwing in a little bit of financial contribution each and every month. So once again, thank you to Kathy and Simon, and of course, thank you to every patron that kicks in each and every month. I could not be doing this without them. But that is it for this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, Hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.